grateful to uh, see his encouragement, to see his healing, both physically and spiritually in our lives. Today we um, jump into a new subject matter, haha, politics and the Bible. Um, this is something I've been wanting to do for a couple of years here. I feel like in our culture today there's a lack of understanding of our government, of how our government's formed, of the purpose of government, biblically speaking, and what the Bible has to say about that, as well as certain political issues um, that uh, are, can be charged in our culture. And so I want the Bible to be able to speak into all of that. Now today, specifically, I want for us to talk about, because of what just happened this past week, the Supreme Court. You say, Gord, you're not going to preach on the Supreme Court today. Uh, actually, we are going to go there. Um, and my purpose, again, I wasn't planning on doing this this week. I had something else planned. But when Friday happened, by the time I hit my office on Friday morning, I'm like, look, I had everything ready to go for today. And I thought, no, I want to go ahead and talk to this issue at a time when people are thinking about it. And so we're going to um, jump into the idea of our Supreme Court and how the Bible um, speaks to that same issue. Now, our scripture today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. And as is our custom, I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Again, we stand week in and week out to be reminded this is where truth comes from, that God's word is the final word. God's word is the final opinion, the one that matters. At the end of the day, when we stand before him and have to give account of our lives, friends, what he had to say in the holy scriptures, friends, is what matters. Not what you think, not what I think, not what somebody else on TV thinks. All right, so here we go. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Here we go. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Did I get that right or did y'all? Let's try that one more time. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You may be seated. I'm getting my NIV and my ESV uh, confused in my mind. Uh, don't move a lot, right? All right, so, um, so that's our text for today. And that's, these are the words of Paul to young Timothy. Paul is at Rome. He's writing this in chains. He's writing this from Rome. He's expecting to get his head chopped off sometime. And so he has Timothy who is, uh, I tell you what, can y'all shoot up the lights? I don't want anybody falling asleep on me this morning. I worked hard on um, but so, so Timothy um, is, is going to kind of take things over for Paul. He's, Paul's handling, handing off the, the baton, if you will, to young Timothy um, to, to oversee these churches, to make sure that theology is being taught properly, to make sure that the churches are in line with the, the doctrine of the gospel. And so um, amongst the many words that, of instruction that he has for young Timothy, he says to him, hey, look, do your very best to present yourself to God who is one, as one who is approved, a worker who has, not to be, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling, in NIV it says, correctly handling the word of truth, that is, the Holy Scriptures. Now, um, you say, well, Gordon, what does any of this have to do with, this, with, with politics? How, what is, where do we go from here? Well, one of the ways that we correctly... I'm going to have to go with a handheld. I got one for me. Um, hermeneutics. Check, check, one, two. There we go. All right, so in the area of hermeneutics, which is this understanding of how we interpret the Bible, how we interpret scriptures, um, there is two different Greek words. One is called exegeo, and another is called eisegeo. It's where we get the terms exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is the idea that we're going to go to scripture and then pull out of scripture the meaning that's already there. 
Um, eisegeo is the Greek term that means to pull into. That is, we're going to start with preconceived ideas and notions. We're going to come to the biblical text, and we're going to apply those preconceived, predetermined conclusions uh, to the text. So basically, eisegesis is a conclusion in search of a Bible verse. You follow that? Which is not the right way to deal with Scripture. It's not the correct way to handle the Scriptures. What we want to do is we want to get to the original intent of the author, and that's why we have the term isa, or exegesis, okay? Or the, comes from the Greek term eisegeo, to pull out of, to go to the text, allow it to speak for itself, and then to, um, to move forward from there. Well, I want to give you a couple of examples in Scripture where eisegesis and exegesis have where we see that happen, okay? One of the first of those comes from Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 7 and 8. So in Revelation chapter 20, uh, beginning verses 1 through 6, we see that Satan's been thrown into the abyss. That is in hell. That's where he is right now. And then in a time moving forward, so the author's looking forward into the distant future. When we get to verse 7, he says these words. He says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, that is from hell, and he will come out to deceive the nations of the world that are at the four corners of the, what's the word? Earth. Now that word earth comes from the Greek term gain, and it literally means dirt. It means soil. And anybody in the first century context knew that when they used the term gain, they were talking about the territory, what we call the fertile crescent. It forms a crescent moon shape starting in Mesopotamia up by northern Iraq, Nineveh, uh, that area, Mosul was Nineveh today. And so starting from that territory, moving down through Israel, down into northern Africa, and it's that territory in the ancient Near East that was arable soil. It was good dirt. It was fertile a fertile-shaped crescent, formed a fertile-shaped crescent. You could go in and you could plant crops, you could plant olive groves, you could grow things, you could live there. And so they call that territory the fertile crescent. And so in the Greek, when they use that term gain, that is specifically the, where the area, the territory, that anybody in the first century knew that they were talking about. So it says here that when Satan's released, that all of a sudden these armies are going to gather together from the four corners of the fertile crescent— you follow that, from the four corners of the earth, not the earth as in the globe. There's a separate Greek term that refers to the earth as a globe, and it's the word cosmos, which is where we get our word cosmos. And it's translated that way in your NIV and in your ESV differently uh, for that reason. So you'll read earth here, where, where the word gain appears in the Greek. But over in John chapter 3 and verse 16, where God's referring to the whole globe, to the whole kitten caboodle, he says, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, the whole thing that he gave his one and only son. Not that Jesus came and died for the sins of only the people who lived in the fertile crescent, but he came and died for the sins of everybody around the whole globe. But referring to when Satan's going to be released at the end of times and you see these armies, you can imagine this, right? You can imagine Syria and you can imagine Iran and you can imagine Iraq and you can imagine Egypt and you can imagine Yemen, those armies that are at, situated at the four corners of the Fertile Crescent territory gathering together against God's holy city. Look at verse 9. It says they marched up over the broad plain of the, here's our word again, gain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. So again, that word that's referred to there in the Greek is the word gain, and it's translated in your New Testament, not in your Old Testament, it's translated in your New Testament as the word earth. So you read that word earth in your New Testament, you always think, okay, that's talking about the ancient Near East, it's not talking about the whole globe. When you read the word world, 
in your New Testament, you're always thinking about the whole kit and caboodle, the whole smash, okay? And so because authors have not done word studies, because they haven't gone back and returned to original languages of Greek and of Hebrew, they've missed the meaning of that text. So they're looking for armies to be gathered from Australia and armies to be gathered from China and armies to be gathered from North America. And it's like, but that's not the plain reading of the text. The plain reading of the text to somebody in the first century is that they heard gain. They're like, yeah, they're going to come from Iraq. They're going to come from Syria. They're going to come from northern Egypt. They're going to come from the four corners of the fertile crescent of the gain of the earth, the arable soil. All right, so there's one example of how people start with this. They see the word earth in their English translation, and they think the whole smash, right? And then all of a sudden, the armies of Iraq and all those are starting to come against Jerusalem, and suddenly they're missing the fact that Jesus is about ready to, you know, come back. Um, so anyhow, so that's, that's an example of eisegesis and exegesis. Another example of that comes to us from Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, a verse that you probably quoted, maybe even committed to memory, which says, I can do all things through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. I've even got that verse printed on the back of a couple of my t-shirts. That's a wonderful verse. It's been a verse that's encouraged me over the course of my many years. And so um, what does Paul mean there? Well, that's actually a statement of hyperbole. Um, it's a grammatical or, I mean, y'all took language arts class, right? He's not saying that you can jump off of a building and fly, that you can do all things. He's not saying that you can swim down to the depths of the, of the sea, that you can do all things. He's not saying that you can come up with a cure for cancer, that you can do all things. He's not saying that you can do all these miraculous, magnificent things or that you can heal somebody. He's saying that you can do all things. He's making a statement of hyperbole. And if we go to Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we learn what kind of Paul more has in mind here when he says all things. He says, I urge Eodia, and the ESV it says, what does it say? It says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree with one another, that is to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now these are two women. He says there in verse 3, Yes, I ask you, true companions, help these two women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. And who are these two ladies? Well, these are ladies that were out on missionary exploits alongside the apostle Paul. These are two ladies that had evangelized. These are two ladies that had shared the gospel with many people alongside Paul on as many stops. And they had shared the gospel with people and witnessed to people and prayed with people to receive Christ. And now they have planted themselves at the church in Philippi, to whom Paul is writing this letter. And now Paul's standing up in front of the church, or, or not Paul, they're standing up in front of the church reading this letter, and it's the first time anybody's had a chance to read it because that's how they would have shared these letters with the churches. They'd have cracked that seal, Paul's wax seal, right in front of the church. Nobody had a chance to preview. Nobody had a chance to go and get their eraser out, right? And they would have read this letter in front of the church. And so Paul points out in front of the church that Eodia and Syntyche are not of the same mind. We don't know what it was that they were in disagreement about, but we know that they were in some sort of disagreement. And Paul says in front of the whole church, now why would Paul be doing that? Again, thinking about the historical context of what's going on there, we would imagine that the church has gotten caught up in whatever this disagreement is, that it's polarized into its two parts that some people agree with Yodica and some people agree with Syntyche, and that people and the church is kind of split and divided down the middle. And so Paul says, hey, look, I urge these two women, and in a sense he's saying, hey, I urge everybody else. 
to bury the hatchet, to come together in the Lord. Because whatever it is that you're arguing about, Paul knew, it's of no consequence. This isn't a a matter of orthodoxy. This isn't a matter of doctrine. This is like what carpet the color's going to be, right? What color the carpet? Yeah, y'all follow that, right? Did you? Okay. All right, so... um, It'll, it'll hit you later. All right, so, but, so that's why Paul says, I can do all things, Philippians 4.13, through Christ. Even this very difficult thing, even these two ladies getting together and getting along and resolving their issue, they can even do that through Christ who gives them strength. So it's a statement of hyperbole, but we wouldn't know that unless we had done a little historical background and studied this. One more passage of Scripture I'm going to bring to your attention comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 27, verses 1 through 3. I think I preached on this particular passage or done a Bible study on it several years ago. And this is the story of Jotham becoming king. Let me read it to you. It says, Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, pretty young guy to become king, and he reigned for, in Jerusalem for 16 years, from the age of 25 to the age of 41, if I do my math correctly. He is the king of Judah. That is the southern kingdom. At this point in Israel's history, it's divided between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Judah is the bloodline of David. Jotham comes from the bloodline of David. And, uh, and his dad is, if you skip down to verse 2, his dad um, is a guy named Uzziah. It says he did, Jotham did, what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. And, but unlike his dad... Josiah did not enter into the temple of the Lord. Now, I'm riding down the road a couple of years ago, and I hear this preacher come on the radio. And the preacher's talking about how, um, how young people are no longer going to church like the generation before them. And, I mean, he was really red in the face, and he was preaching it hard, and it was a good sermon. It was a good thing to talk about. And, but he was preaching it from this text. The problem is that's not what this text is all about. This text is not about young people not going to church because their parents hadn't taught them right or because their parents hadn't, you know, like some people, folks, drug, drug their church, right? Had a drug problem when you're growing up. Your parents drug you to church. And so Jotham, same thing here. Uh, you know, he, it says here that unlike his dad, he didn't enter into the temple of the Lord. And so this pastor looked at that as a bad thing. Well, let me do just a quick little bit of paraphrasing of what happens because if you go to the chapter before, if this pastor had read chapter 26, he would discover that Uzziah had gotten a big head. You see, Uzziah had... Um, had Jotham's dad, the former king, had invented some arrow shooting mechanisms that he posted on the walls of Jerusalem that kept all their enemies at, enemies at bay. And he also posted some, uh, some contraptions, some catapults that would hurl large stones out over the wall and onto the enemy troops as they were approaching. And so because of this, Uzziah's fame grew and his head grew. And so he decided that he was going to go into the temple of God and he was going to make an incense offering to the Lord. Now, this is forbidden for anybody other than a priest to do this. And for the priest to do this, they have to go through consecration. They have to be made holy. They have to be purified. There's this whole process that they have to engage. Uzziah didn't do any of that. He's like, I'm just going to go in there. I'm going to say, hey to God, I just invented these really great you know, contraptions, and, uh, and I'm going I'm, I'm to give God a little offering. And so he walks in there, and the next thing you know, Uzziah's got a big blotch of leprosy on his forehead. And for the rest of Uzziah's life, he's quarantined outside of the city, and he spends the rest of his life away from the people of Israel, and he loses his crown because he disobeyed the Lord by going into the church, by going into the temple. So go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 27 and verse 2. Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, a good king, 
just like his father had done, but he, unlike his dad, Jotham did not enter the temple of the Lord. A good thing. He learned a lesson. Don't do what my dad did. The message out of that particular passage of Scripture is just because you grew up in a household with your daddy making bad decisions doesn't mean that that dictates your future. That would that'd be a great message, right? And that's what that text would have preached. But again, he didn't read chapter 26 in order to understand chapter 27. So you got to do some contextual work to understand. Now, my point in saying all of this, you're like, please, Gordon, get to it. My point in saying all of this is that there's a way to correctly handle, to rightly handle the word of truth. And that is we have to go to the author's original intent, eisegesis, rather than starting with preconceived ideas and notions and bringing those two and layering those onto the text and saying, well, this is God's truth, thus saith the Lord, really what it is is thus saith Gordon Griffin. And that's not what we want. We want to start with the text and let it teach into our lives. Let God's truth that he wrote down be what instructs our lives. So that's my, my big point here this morning. Um, okay, well, you said, Gordon, you were going to talk about politics. Oh, yes, I forgot about that. Um, that's just our warm-up this morning, which means it's time for us to now make a little transition here and ask the question we ask every week, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, you know, you said you're going to talk about politics. I'm interested in that. But also, I mean, eisegesis, exegesis, um, Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't understand well, you know, how does this impact where I'm living every day, uh, what does this have to do with my everyday life? Well, <clears throat> y'all have heard of Webster's Dictionary before, right? Yes, hopefully so. All right, so Noah Webster wrote Webster's Dictionary. Um, he was a brilliant mind. He learned over 20 languages in his lifetime. Crazy smart guy. And he produced the first North American dictionary, if you would, with 70, over 70,000 words. I mean, he was crazy about vocab. He loved vocab. Um, <clears throat> but one thing we don't know so much about Webster is that he was also one of the founding fathers of our nation. Noah Webster was among the first to call for the Constitutional Convention to say, hey, look, we've got this new nation. We've declared ourselves as independent from Britain, but now we need to uh, formalize some sort of a document that's going to govern us, that's going to hold us together as a nation, as a people, that's going to preside over us, that's going to give us direction for our future. We don't want anarchy. We want a government. And so the Constitution was going to put that in place. Um, Webster, in talking about the meanings of words and how they shift and change, was very concerned. So he he, he, he understands that the meanings of words over the course of generations, over the course of centuries, that the meanings of those words can change. And so he writes about that, and he was concerned that that was what was going to happen to the Constitution. So here's what he has to say. He says, and I quote, in the lapse of two or three centuries, he's observed this in history, go 200 years, go 300 years, he said, changes have, have now taken place, which in particular passages obscure the sense of the original languages. The effect of these changes is that some words are now being used, even now, in a sense that is different from which they had. In other words, this idea that he's saying here is that I, I'm a student of languages, and a, what a word meant 300 years ago, I've observed that that word changes in its meaning and in its definition and the way that cultures in the future use it. He says, that we, I see that happening even now in the late 1700s when he's writing this. 
He says, when words are understood in a sense different from that which they had when introduced, mistakes can be very injurious. So his point there is that, hey, look, an author may pen something, may write something down. Future generations, 200, 300 years, get a hold of that same document with different understandings of some of the terminology that's used, and they wind up with a different meaning than what was originally intended by the author of that original document. You follow me so far? This is Noah Webster's chief concern, that this was not only happening to the Scriptures, that this was not only happening to other uh, documents, but that this would happen to the Constitution itself. President Thomas Jefferson warned of this same danger when he instructed Supreme Court Justice William Johnson. He said, to carry ourselves back to the time when the Constitution was adopted, recollect the spirit manifested in the debates. He's instructing this justice. He's saying, hey, look, you want to know what we meant when we wrote down those words? Go back to the spirit of the debates that we were having. He says, instead of trying or inserting some sort of a meaning and squeezing it out of the text or inventing some meaning when you didn't know what we really meant, conform, he said, to the probable one in which it was passed. James Madison declared, I entirely concur in the propriety of resorting to the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified by the nation. In other words, the sense, the meaning that we intended it for, he says, in that sense alone, it is the legitimate Constitution. In other words, what were we thinking at the time when the Constitutional Founding Fathers wrote down that document? And that's the what we want to get back to. It's the same interpretive skills that we apply to the Scriptures. He's saying, look, we need to use that same honesty when it comes to our Constitution. Madison, Jefferson, and Webster are not interested in the opinion of some future person, but rather they want that future person to come and seek out their opinion. And that's why they wrote all these letters back and forth to one another. And they wanted the future justices and future uh, judges to go back and read those letters to make sure they were inside of the mind of the original author and the original author's intent. Um, Justice James Wilson, one of the six persons, only six, one of only six to sign both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, wrote these words. This is Justice, Supreme Court Justice Wilson. He said, the first and governing maxim, as the first thing that justices should do, is in the interpretation of a statute or a law, is to discover the meaning of those who made it. These guys were not fools. They understood that future generations, either by uh, either by intention or by just sloppy scholarship, would miss the meaning that was intended with the original words. Webster knew this from his 20 different languages of studies, that the intent of the meaning of words could be misconstrued, could be misunderstood by future generations. Now, what does all this have to do with politics in the Bible? Well, the First Amendment of our Constitution, here's what it says. You ready? It says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Let me tell you what that means to liberal media and to liberal activists. What that means is that there needs to be a separation between church and state. What that means is there needs to be a wall of separation, a tall, large wall that needs to be built between the government and between the church, between the government and between your theology that the two should never intermingle, that the two should never meet. Well, is that what they meant 
when they wrote those words down uh, in the First Amendment. Let's do a little bit of historical. Y'all okay? Y'all with me? I know, this is, we're wading into deep stuff here this morning. I understand that, throwing quotes at you from James Madison. But anyhow, y'all hang with me. Let's do a little bit of historical contextual work. Let's apply the same principles to understanding the First Amendment that we would apply to understanding the Bible because that's the only way to honor what was written in that Constitution. First of all, when was the First Amendment even, when was it written? When was it conceived? Well, it was written in 1790, the First Amendment, and it was one of 11 other amendments, so 12 in all, that were presented to the, to the, uh, to the Congress to amend the Constitution that they had written. And the purpose, and then 10 of those 12 would actually be adopted as part of, as true amendments. So we had the first 10 amendments were 1790. They all came as one package together. And the purpose, don't miss this, because it gets a historical context. The purpose of them adding these amendments was to limit the power and the scope of the federal government. We know it as the Bill of Rights. They had a concern that the federal government was going to become so large and so powerful. They had just come out from underneath the boot of, uh, of Britain with its king, and they had watched how dictatorships across the world had, been, had made subjects of their people rather than allowing people to live freely. And they wanted to make sure that the federal government didn't grow so large and so powerful in its scope and centralize the powers of, over the people that, uh, that they put these amendments in place. We put these Bill of Rights in place so that the people would be able to uh, be, live free and have liberty, and that liberty would be protected. So that was the purpose of it over, overarching. Um, the second concern, the second reason why they wrote those Ten Amendments was that religion in America was all over the place. Like, there was a pluralism of Christianity, not pluralism of religions, but a pluralism of Christianity, many, many different denominations all across uh, the U.S. Um, and so there were these little geographical pockets all over the United States of Baptists and of Quakers and of Episcopalians. Uh, Governor Samuel Johnston of North Carolina observed, speaking from that time period, that the people of Massachusetts and Connecticut are mostly Presbyterians. In Rhode Island, the tenets of the Baptists, I believe, prevail. In New York, they are, they are divided very much. The most numerous of the Christian religions are the Episcopalians and the Baptists. In New Jersey, they are as much divided as we are, talking about us here in North Carolina. In Pennsylvania, if any set prevails more than others, it is that of the Quakers. In Maryland, the Episcopalians are most numerous, though there are other sects. And then he concludes with these words. He says, I hope, therefore, that, gentlemen, we will see there is no cause of fear that any religion, any, notice his word, his terminology, that any religion shall be exclusively established. When he uses the word religion, it is synonymous with Christian denomination. When he uses the word religion, he has in his mind Baptists, Quakers, all the division amongst Christianity. He's not, he doesn't include in his, in his thinking, remember original intent, he does not include in his thinking Islam and Judaism and Hinduism and, and all the other isms of the world. He's thinking about the different denominations. He just spelled them out for us. And he uses the word religion. He's thinking about denominations within Christianity. I didn't, again, I didn't hear him mention 
Islam and those sorts of things, I heard him mention Baptists and Quakers and other Christian religions or Christian denominations. Um, <clears throat> so what is his concern? What was the concern of the, of the folks that put those amendments in place to the Constitution? They were concerned. Let's go back to the First Amendment for just a second. They were concerned that a national denomination would be established. That the, that, the, that the Congress would say, hey, look, we're all Christians, but we want the, the Presbyterians to be the national church of America. And that was his concern. Charles uh, Carroll, let me flip over to Charles Carroll for a second, said these words. He said, I entered, and, and he was also one of the signers of the Declaration. He said, I entered into the Revolution founded on the hope that no one denomination would become the religion of the state. Now, why is this so important to Charles Carroll? Charles Carroll was a Catholic. There weren't that many Catholics in America in the late 1700s. And he was concerned that all these non-Catholics, all these Protestants, because there was many of them, would, uh, would, would, would rub out the Catholics, and the Catholics would have no place in the Americas. And so he said, I joined the revolution because I wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. I want to make sure that there was a place for Catholics in the midst of this great uh, experiment. Now, with that in mind, again, let's take a look at the First Amendment. Its purpose, remember, is to limit the power of centralized government. Its purpose is to, uh, to, to say to the federal government, look, we don't want a centralized power that has the ability and the authority to just rule over all of the people like we see over in England, like we see in Europe with the monarchies. And so they put this law in place, they did, and they felt like establishing a national religion, establishing a national Christian denomination would accomplish that. Um, so they said, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Yet, these words, these very words, have been used to separate our churches from our state. These very words have been used to remove crosses from federal cemeteries. These very words have been used to eliminate nativity scenes on the courthouse steps. These very words have been used to take prayer out of our schools and to remove the Ten Commandments from courtrooms across America. Friends, never, never was that the intent of our founding fathers. Now, what difference does this make to you and to me? Um, we need to be comfortable. I don't, I, don't, I don't care how you fell on the whole Kavanaugh thing, all right? I, that, that's up to you. You pray about it. You ask the Holy Spirit how to how to encourage you to vote or whatever. But the one thing we should all as Americans agree on is that justices who are appointed use these principles of interpretation where we seek the original intent of the author. Rather than starting with some idea, some pre-drawn conclusion, and then running to the Constitution in search of some sort of a, that's not fair. It's not fair to the Constitution you can basically rewrite the law to be whatever you want it to be. And so I think we can all, no matter what side of the political spectrum we fall, we can all agree that to be fair, the role of justices is to go to the Constitution and to spend time with it, knowing the history of the people who wrote it, knowing the flaws of the people who wrote it, 
and to make decisions based on their original intent. You say, Gordon, hold on, just time out for a second. You are so naive. You are so naive. I mean, you missed, you missed the big point, is that the Constitution, unlike the Bible, the Constitution is a book written by fallible people. We should be able to change it. And you know what? We have a process in place to do just that. And it doesn't come from the bench. It comes from the legislative branch of government where debates can happen, not from nine people who are unelected officials who sit on a bench and declare, thus saith me, and who impose their opinions and their pre-drawn conclusion and their ideals upon the American people. So, yeah, the Constitution is a fallible document because it's written by people, and it will need to change because of the changing needs of society and those sorts of things. But these principles of interpretation that we use of exegetical principles, it's called hermeneutics. Y'all didn't want to know that. But anyway, uh, principles, those same principles ought to be applied to the Constitution just the same as they'd be applied to Shakespeare, just as they'd be applied to your Bible and mine. That's the only fair way to handle, to correctly handle uh, the Constitution or whatever the document may be. You say, Gordon, okay, I appreciate all that. Let's bring this back to the Bible, though. I was at a church conference several years ago, and uh, I was utterly disappointed by what I heard come out of the mouth of the presenter. The presenter, who's a pastor you would know, I'm not going to share his name because we just don't do that, but the pastor uh, who was a presenter standing up in front of the congregation in this big, massive arena full of preachers <sighs> said, <clears throat> what's the problem with the Bible being an open book? God still gives revelation. God still teaches us truth. The Bible, what's wrong with it being an open book? His, his meaning is, what's wrong with the Bible changing? What's wrong with the Bible uh, evolving? What's wrong with the Bible? Why, why, why do you have to think the Bible is a closed book? Why do you have to think that God said all that there was to say? Well, Revelation chapter 22, straight from the mouth of Jesus, said these words, verse 18, Oh, he didn't have them. All right, so I'm going to go to the back of my book. Revelation chapter 22. I threw those at Tim last minute. You wouldn't believe the stuff I threw at Tim last minute today, but I really threw those very last, last minute. So Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 says, Jesus says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecies of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Friends, this is a closed document. It is not up for debate. We don't get to add to it. We don't get to subtract away from it. It is in a source of authority for your life and for mine. And to correctly handle it, we must come to it seeking the original author's intent. What did that author mean when they wrote down what did the audience hear in the first century when they heard those words? All right, let me sum up. I hope that we can see that to honor a text means to seek out the original intent of the original author, to get inside the mind of the people who wrote it and of the people of that particular day.
And I hope that you see how this naturally transitions into appointing originalist justices uh, to the Supreme Court and to other appointments within our land. Um, and if you want to edit, if you want to change the Constitution, fine. There's a method for that. It's the legislative branch. That's where that's supposed to happen. And I hope that you also see that the Bible is unique, though, among all documents in our world, that the Bible is not an open book that is evolving and changing, but that rather the Bible is a closed book that God has said all that we need to know, that God has revealed his truth. And friends, it's everything we know, need to know about our sin problem, about how to have that sin problem fixed. It's everything we need to know about who God is, his essential nature, the qualities of who he is, about how to raise our family, about how our marriages should look. God gives us everything that we should need to know in this book, and we dare not add to it to rightly handle God's word of truth. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity just to learn today and to consider these principles of interpretation, these principles of how to rightly handle your word of truth. Lord, in every passage of Scripture, there's only one meaning that you intended. There may be multiple applications, but there's only one meaning. Lord, through the instruction of your Holy Spirit and through the engagement of these principles, may we, be a, may we be a people who are faithful to handle your word of truth. Lord, we ask that you would, through your Holy Spirit, work in our nation, that you would draw this nation back to a place where it wants to honor you and live for you and hold you and your truths high. Lord, may we not look to our government to solve all of our problems, but may we rather, as Yodi and Syntyche, learn to bury the hatchet. Learn to work things out with our neighbor. God, we just thank you so much for your death on the cross. We thank you for making a way for us to have our sins forgiven, to have heaven as our eternal home. And Lord, if there's some wound in our heart because of the events, the political events of this past week, we ask as we share this time of communion that you would remind us that there are greater things to be worried about in our world. Lord, instruct us. Heal us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.